Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to the Leaving Eden podcast. My name is Gavriel Hakon, and I'm here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter. And we are here to talk about Sadie's life in the independent fundamental Baptist cult. Now, up until this point, we've tried to keep this podcast specifically related to Sadie's life and her own personal experiences. We've looked mostly at this cult through that lens, but we've decided that it's going to be necessary for us to have some episodes specifically which depart from this method of framing. So this episode is going to be the first in a five-part series in which we chronicle the leadership of the First Baptist Church of Hammond, which is the most influential seat within the IFB movement. So for this series, we'll be departing from form a little bit. We won't do the homework at the end of the show because, frankly, researching these episodes is homework. Yeah, so the plan is to alternate these more biographical episodes with episodes that follow our normal format more closely. And I did want to add, um, today's episode is biographical, but I certainly don't think it's boring. And next week's certainly will not be, or the next in the series certainly won't be. <laughs> yeah, because th- this story is bonkers. Um, so what we're going to end up doing is we're going to alternate between doing a normal episode and then doing one of these special episodes every other week. And so through the end of this series, and then everything's going to go back to normal after that. So this week is going to be the first of two episodes that are focused specifically on Jack Hiles. Now, Jack Hiles was the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Hammond from uh, 1959 until his death in 2001. And like the college that Sadie attended, which was Hiles Anderson College, he's the one that that's named for. He's. I just want to note in the early stages of hashing out this episode, um, like we do, we use a Google Doc. Um, I was writing out some questions about Jack Hiles, like his history and such. Uh, and Sadie, you were writing out the responses. But when I was reading those responses, I thought that they read almost like you were writing answers to a test, like with short 
like with short response questions, like this information, these dates, these people, you know, it all felt memorized. Well, yeah, you're you're dead on with that. You were typing questions into the doc, like uh, what year did Jack Hiles become pastor of First Baptist Church? And I kind of went into flashback mode and just answered those questions from memory because all of this is stuff that I already know. So did you have to take classes about Jack Hiles in school? So or? not in elementary school, but he was a cornerstone of my life. Somebody like a constant presence in my life. Hmm. Yeah, I heard him preach uh, before I can even remember. Uh, my parents were actually members of the church in Hammond when I was born. We moved away shortly after. So growing up, if he visited a church within 100 miles or so of us, we almost always went to hear him preach. And I remember so clearly this one time being about six or seven, and I'm wearing my floral ruffled little church dress and my white patent leather shoes and my white ruffly socks. Uh, to the service to hear Brother Hiles talk. And afterwards, we stood in line to say hello to him and shake his hand. And I just had this really clear memory of him signing my little pink Bible. Real quick, uh, because this is something that I'm not really familiar with, but is it common in fundamentalist circles to have people autograph your Bible? Because I know that I've heard like Donald Trump autographing Bibles before, and that always kind of struck me as odd. Yeah, it's it's a thing people do. The inside front cover of your Bible essentially becomes like an autograph book. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you have any famous preacher you meet sign it, uh, or if you hear a sermon by someone who's not so famous, but it really impressed you, uh, you might have them sign it. And it's almost like collecting autographs from rock stars. Uh, like if you met somebody really famous, you'd want an autograph. But if you met somebody that you thought might be famous one day, you'd also maybe try to get an autograph from that person. Oh, yeah. So it's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I had that autograph before they were. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. Exactly. It's a collection. And um, if you're a girl, you might also have famous preachers' wives sign the front of your Bible as well. Oh, okay. um, typically, the person signs their name and their life verse. Life verses are something we'll get into much more detail about at a different time. But it's a verse that they've chosen that they feel like has a, an important message or the kind of sums up their life. Okay, so that doesn't seem that odd. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's, something that I'm not familiar with. It's just a thing people do. Um, having the front pages really full of signatures is a status symbol because uh, you almost always collect a signature after a church service. So if you have somebody's signature, it means that you've met them. And if you have a lot of signatures, it means that you've heard a lot of sermons and been to a lot of church conferences. So back to Hiles, um, I read his massive 500-page authorized biography uh, when I was just a kid. I was probably around eight or nine. Wow. Yeah, I was an early reader. Eh, it was whatever. <laughs> but I heard, I heard his stories from him, uh, hearing him in person and hearing his sermons on tape. I also heard my dad tell his stories. I heard other pastors tell his stories. I read his books as soon as I learned how to read. One of the first like books written for grownups that I remember reading was his book on how to raise infants. And I've, I've read quite a few of his books. And then when I went to college at Hiles Anderson, I took a class with his grandson, uh, Kenny Scott, teaching the class about Hiles' life and his philosophies. From this, I mean, we can get the sort of picture of the, of the kind of towering figure that Jack Hiles was over the IFB movement. Yeah, I don't remember a time when I didn't know who he was. And the IFB movement wasn't started 
by Jack Hiles in any way, but he was probably the most influential IFB pastor ever. And he certainly was one of the most famous IFB pastors ever. Uh, Before the national news stories and before the college was founded, it all kind of started in 1959 when Hiles was called to be the pastor of First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana. So I think the best way to introduce him to people who are unfamiliar is through this clip of one of his sermons. And I'm just going to warn you guys beforehand, uh, this sermon is deeply homophobic. So enjoy yourself, queers. Enjoy, enjoy yourself, homosexuals. Enjoy yourself, lesbians. Enjoy your time in the armed forces. Enjoy your gay rights ordinances. Enjoy your sissy earrings. Enjoy your gay rights parades. Enjoy your unisex philosophy. Enjoy your demonstrations. And walk across down the parade and have a parade and enjoy yourself. And enjoy the way you talk, queers. Enjoy it. But I got news for you. Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. Enjoy yourself, baby killers. Enjoy yourself, those with bloody hands and bloody hearts. Enjoy yourself, a million and a half murders a year in America. Live it up. Enjoy yourself, you ERA husbands. Live it up. Live it up. But I got news for you folks, you husbands that belong to the NOW organization and the ERA crowd and the unisex crowd. I got news for you. Sunday is going to come. Yeah, this is your hour, but our hour is coming too, you know. This is your hour and the hour of the power of darkness. But praise God, Sunday is going to come. So this sermon, which is titled Sunday's Coming, is this the type of sermon that's uh, typical of Jack Hiles IFB church service? Yeah, that's that's pretty typical. Uh, I can't say what his preaching was like at the very beginning of his career, so the 50s and 60s, but I've heard some sermon audio from the late 60s and 70s, and it was really similar to this. So I assume that's kind of just how he preached uh, his entire life, because I know that from the 60s till the end of his life, it was all the same. So I imagine that before he was getting recorded, it was about the same as well. Uh, just about every sermon, it's that cadence of, you know, well, he'd speak really low and then he'd shout and then he'd shout and then he'd speak really low. Um, so that that cadence was always there. And it was also really typical of him and other IFB preachers to insert their own opinions about feminism and queer people and other things into sermons. And since Hiles' preaching style is so often copied, by other preachers, this is very much what you might hear in any IFB church if you went today. So he comes to First Baptist Church in 1959. In 1959, and at that time, First Baptist Church was not an independent Baptist church. It was part of the American Baptist Convention, and its members were mostly upper-middle-class people from the suburbs of Chicago. For example, one prominent member owned a department store a block away from the church. 
So it was just like a regular run-in-the-mill Baptist church before Jack Alice came along. Yes, it was just like any other denominational Baptist church. It would have been more on the formal side of okay. Baptist as well. They were theologically Baptist, but they used they used organ music instead of piano music. They said amen instead of amen. So as as we heard from that clip back there, Jack Hiles would have been much more of a firebrand than the, than what this church was used to. Yeah, Jack Hiles did not fit in well with the congregation at First Baptist Church. He struggled to sing along with the church organ because he was used to piano. His fire and brimstone preaching and his Texas drawl were a turnoff to the people who went to church there. He was used to also a lot of feedback during his sermons in the form of audience members clapping or shouting out amen. So he he was a fish out of water. He did have a a beautiful, graceful uh, Southern Belle for a wife. Her name is Beverly, and he had four very small children. And that helped endear him to church members. I think they liked his wife probably better than they liked him. But still, he, he really struggled to fit in. So today, First Baptist Church of Hammond, it's a mega church. But when Hiles took over in 1959, it wasn't. And so Hiles is the one who's responsible for making the First Baptist Church of Hammond into what it is today. So how exactly did he go about doing that? So the first step was moving the church out of the American Baptist Convention and making it an independent fundamental Baptist church. Uh, Hiles did, of course, want a less formal church service to match his style, but his his main points of contention with the American Baptists were the fact that they were using Bible translations other than the King James Version, and of course his ever-present specter of evil, which he called liberalism. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that it's so about a third of the members had already left the church because of Hiles raucous preaching style and the people who remained were more conservative and more ready for the switch to independence Uh, the next step is the inception of the modern bus ministry and to understand what the bus ministry so in chicago uh in the mid 1800s preachers like dl moody who was a big inspiration of hiles would collect horse-drawn buggies full of children and bring them to church. Bringing children to church whose parents didn't attend was a common practice, especially in poor neighborhoods long before Hiles. But his dedication to it made it infinitely more popular than it would have been otherwise. Uh, Hiles also asked his church members to go door-to-door on Saturdays. So first in neighborhoods near the church and then later in Chicago proper. Uh, These church members would witness to the parents and ask if the children could come to church the next day. And they would promise the children promotions like carnivals, candy, or a free goldfish to everyone who came to church. And then on Sunday, the church buses would go to the neighborhoods and pick up all of these children and bring them to church. And this was not popular among the wealthier members of First Baptist Church of Hammond. They felt like these children might steal things from the church. They felt like, you know, they get their dirty handprints on the walls. They, they were not happy. And eventually, three of the mainstay deacons, who were also some of the wealthiest church members, ha- held a deacon meeting and gave Hiles a choice. It's us or the bus kids. Make a choice. 
they're gone or we're gone. I don't know. I'm 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 wondering about your characterization of that because you you very much characterize this as a, a maybe that's the IFB talking through you as like a rich versus poor thing where they're like, oh, well, they just didn't want it because they thought the kids would ruin the church, but maybe they saw something else that they thought could have been wrong with it. I've never had to consider that before going through and writing this episode. We talked about inside and outside information, and that's what I was always told. Unfortunately, I can't back this up with any outside information because there isn't. This is way before Hiles came to any kind of national prominence. So there isn't outside information. So all I can do is present it the way it was told to me. They've lost like a third of the members from his Firebrand style. How many members did they lose from the bus ministry? It's I don't have exact numbers. I think about a third of what was left. A few episodes ago, you talked about how as a student at Hiles Anderson College, you were required to go soul winning every week in various neighborhoods throughout Chicago and the suburbs. Is this the same sort of thing as bringing the bus kids to church? So they're closely related. They're often done at the same time, but they're not exactly the same thing. So what I was required to do while at Hiles Anderson was doing both at the same time. Go to a pre-assigned neighborhood in Chicago, knock on every door, uh, try to talk about the gospel to any adults in the house and try to get them to pray a prayer with me and be saved. After that, if they... Uh, if they had any kids, I would invite their kids to come to church with us the next day. And then I would also walk up to groups of children or groups of teenagers on the street, try to witness to them, try to get them to pray the prayer and get saved, and then also try to talk them into coming to church with us or go with them to their house to bug their parents to see if they could come to church. Wow, you sound annoying. Well, like I said before, I was really pretty good at the talking to people and getting them to pray part. And I, I personally think it's because it was fast. I could get through the whole thing in like five minutes. Yeah, eternal salvation, and then I'll be out of your hair five minutes from now. I think that was a pretty sweet deal. I was never good at convincing people to come to church with me. No, like I can't imagine I would be either. Yeah, and there were rewards and praise for people who witnessed to people and then got them to pray with you. But there were much bigger rewards and much more praise for people who got a large number of people to come to church. Wow. So that's a lot of pressure. It is a lot of pressure, and it can go bad very quickly. Um, When I was at Hiles Anderson, I had a friend who became suicidal because they were assigned to a Spanish-speaking area of Chicago for their bus route. They couldn't speak Spanish. They had a hard time learning Spanish. And because of that they were barely able to bring anybody to church. This person got in in a really terrible state because of that. I I mentioned in the dating episode that somebody who didn't bring a lot of people to church or put up good soul winning numbers was seen as undateable. So so my friend got in a horrible state and in, in large part it was due to not being able to perform in the soul winning and bus ministry. Wow. That's I mean that's brutal. Yeah, it was it was a a part, a huge part of your self-esteem. So this is where you can see, in my opinion, more behavior control starting to take hold because it's not just like you dress the certain way or you don't drink alcohol or you don't go to movies. It's not these external things uh, that, you know, people, people make choices all the time. We, we all choose how we're going to dress and what movies we're going to go to. Uh, but this is where actual behavior control uh, really becomes more insidious. Uh, First Baptist Church member at this time would be expected 
not only to come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, they would also be expected to go with a group from the church to go soul winning at least once a week. And then that weekly soul winning day became more ritualized as Saturday because kids would be out of school and you could try to invite children to church on the buses. And Saturday was supposed to be, for a lot of people, it was a full day of knocking on doors. And then plus the extra hours on a bus on Sunday, and suddenly a church member's entire weekend was ruled by the church. It's like a full-time job almost. Yeah, and it becomes like very controlling of your time. And then the more of your time is wrapped up in the church, the less time you have for doing things that might be considered sinful. So this strategy... Uh, throughout the 1960s, uh, this bus ministry strategy, it was massively successful. Yeah. So by 1969, the church was listed among the top 10 largest Sunday schools in America. By 1971, they were presented with a plaque naming them the largest Sunday school in the world or in the nation. And then 1972, they were named as the world's largest Sunday school. And those uh, accolades are coming from mainstream Christian press. So mainstream Christian media. So this is actually sort of outside information. This was a recognition that Hiles took very seriously. The phrase world's largest Sunday school was used in church advertisements for many years. So Hiles had this unique understanding of what would draw children to church, what promotions to run. And he had a lot of people thinking up really good ideas for him. And then he also had devoted church members who would go out soul winning and inviting children to church. And with those two factors, membership grew exponentially. So by 69, the church had about (laughs) 15,000, yeah, uh, about 15,000 people showing up weekly and as many as 30,000 on days with a big attendance push. So yeah, the church went from about 900 people to about 15,000 in 10 years, even after losing a huge chunk out of the original 900. What I really want to go back to here, though, is this idea that we talked about in earlier episodes, this idea of separation and this idea of trying to remain pious in a sinful world by separating yourself from the sinful world. So throughout all this time uh, that this was going on, the 1960s was a notoriously tumultuous time in American history. So like, what do we have? We had the civil rights movement. I guess it that started in the 50s, but it gained a lot of ground and a lot of steam in the 60s. And we talked about racism within the IFB as well. We had the sexual revolution and the women's lib movement. And as we talked about in earlier episodes, the IFB had very specific attitudes towards women and gender roles. We had the Vietnam War and the ensuing protests related to that. And I guess we haven't talked about the IFB and the relationship with war and nationalism in America, but we will coming up. That's a thing that we have plans to talk about. And we had the beginnings of the LGBT rights movement. Plus, during this time, young people were specifically, you know, they're starting to dress differently. They're growing out their hair. They're growing facial hair. You know, rock and roll was popular music. And there's all of the social upheaval going on, all of the social upheaval. So with regards to these issues, you know, if you were socially conservative, if you wanted to see men look one way, if you wanted to see women look one way, you would start to feel that your country was getting away from you, like you were being left behind and your values were no longer valuable. Jack Howes wasn't the only one who was able to sort of ride this wave of counter counterculture to stardom. 
Because during the 1960s, we also had figures like Jerry Falwell, who had a syndicated radio and television ministry. And so we see the rise of televangelism. And so aside from this cultural revolution that we see with music, civil rights, women's lib, anti-Vietnam War, LGBT rights, uh, we have the same time this conservative right-wing evangelical evangelical Christian counter-revolution. They're joining this counter-revolution and making the choice to separate themselves from this sinful society. And Jack Hiles is the most important figure in that revolution for independent Baptists because he's really the one who's bringing this movement forward. Well, yeah, it's kind of part of the the whole perfect storm of all of this because you've got the the 60s is the cultural revolution and the people who are feeling left behind and, and resistant to these changes, I think they're less prominent in popular history than the people who were leading those changes, because that's who we celebrate now. You know, people like Marsha P. Johnson, that's who we're celebrating. Uh, And we kind of forget that there, sometimes we forget that there were people that were very resistant to this. But if you look at what comes on about two decades later, in the 1980s, you've got the election of a conservative president and Reagan, you've got the war on drugs, the satanic panic, the PMRC creating their list of the filthy 15 and requiring explicit labels on music. You've got this clap back that becomes more, I think, more prominent about 20 years later. Yeah. People like Jack Hiles and Bob Jones and Jerry Falwell spoke for these people, the religious, rural or suburban or Midwestern or Southern people that you spoke about as feeling like they were being left behind. And I don't think it's incorrect to say that Hiles was the Jerry Falwell of the IFB. You know, Jerry Falwell, Billy Graham, they're getting these huge audiences and interdenominational audiences on television. And and Hiles was gathering a group of followers of his own. And it was first just in his local area in northwestern Indiana. But eventually he was getting all these followers among independent Baptists everywhere. What I wanted to point out is... No matter which of these these leaders, these preachers you're looking at, the evangelical Christian counter-revolution was already in full swing in the 60s and 70s. This isn't just something that started when Reagan got elected. For the people of First Baptist Church of Hammond, however, and for other independent Baptist churches, it was more than just a religious counter-revolution. It got to the point where counter-revolution was their religion. The political implications of this revolu- of this counter revolution were huge. So, like through the sixties and seventies, I've got a lot. I've got some stats to back this up that I'll put in the show notes. But white evangelicals were not politically active. Like they saw politics as dirty, as corrupt, as an in like an industry where no decent Christian could survive. So during this time, there was also a major realignment going along with the parties. So where the social conservatives and the pro-segregationists were essentially being chased out of the Democratic Party, but Nixon was not really a candidate that they could support from a moral standpoint. So there was this movement building that was waiting for a leader that was worthy of its support, and that didn't happen until 1980 with with Ronald Reagan. And this, you know, along with the monumental Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, which legalized abortion in all 50 states, is really the thing that cemented evangelical support for Republicans, and that still goes on today. And I just wanted to go back to Jack Hiles, though, because he's really the center of this story, that at what point do you think Jack Hiles knew that he had the devoted flock that would do anything for him? So the first part of this particular story might be exaggerated. 
I wasn't able to find decent sources. The second part, though, I do know is true. Okay. So uh, as First Baptist Church grew, the bus ministry became a main focus for them. And that's kind of a snowball effect. You know, the more they focus on the bus ministry, the more they grow. So Hiles really stepped into his role as a leader in fundamentalism. In fundamentalism in general, the number of followers that you have and the number of church members and church attendees that you have, it's what they use as a benchmark of success in a church. Hmm. And Hiles became popular because he was so successful in those terms. He preached at churches around the country. He led revival meetings and he sold cassette tapes of his sermons and his books that he had written. It was one of those books that circulated around the country that uh, originally attracted my dad to go to Hiles Anderson College because Jack Hiles' cassette tapes and his books were available at Christian bookstores around the country. Hmm. So the church started to open up other ministries other than the bus ministry. They started a Spanish, Spanish ministry. They started a deaf ministry. They started a truck stop ministry, which men only, of course. This is, this is the part that may or may not be exaggerated, not sure. But as the story goes, pastors from around the country started to visit First Baptist Church. They wanted to see what Hiles was doing that made him so successful. So Hiles felt like he should consolidate all of these visits and all of these questions into one week of seminars. And he held the first annual pastor school in March of 1970. So it was like a business conference, but for pastors. And then also in 1970, Hiles felt led to open up a Christian high school for the children of their church uh, so that they wouldn't be exposed to worldly people in high school or teachings like evolution and sex education. So soon after starting pastor school, Hiles also felt led by God to open a Bible college, an institution that would train preachers to go out and do exactly what Hiles was, was doing his way. Coincidentally, the more Bible college students you have, the more church members you have, and the more people you have to serve in the bus ministry. This is the part I have more sources for. First Baptist Church was buying properties and making these large land investments. And as an independent church, they were short on cash. In one service, after a particularly impassioned appeal from Hiles, when everyone had already given as much money as they could possibly afford and more, the women of the church began to drop their wedding rings and engagement rings into the offering plates so that they could be sold to finance the building of the high school and the college. Wow. Yeah, Jack, St- Jack Hiles stood in the pulpit with his hands, kind of hands cupped in front of him, full of gold and diamond rings. And that added to huge donations from the college's co-founder, co-founder Russell Anderson, who is the Anderson and Hiles Anderson. That was enough to purchase this old monastery in Crown Point, Indiana, a few miles from the church. I heard this story a lot of times. Uh, as an example of loyalty, loyalty to God and his chosen leader. This story is told a lot if you go to Hiles Anderson as a ins- try to inspire you to work harder and to be grateful for the people who sacrificed so much for the college. For me, I think this is the moment when First Baptist Church of Hammond crossed over a line into culthood. But Hiles must have had some inkling. He must have had some reasonable belief that before this point that the sacrifices that people would have been willing to make on the behalf of his ministry. You know, because there's not a lot of outside information this early in the story, the only evidence we have of this time is the testimony of people who were there. 
And because no one really knew Jack Hiles, there's there's no way to know when exactly he knew how much power he really had. I claim this as when it became a cult because this is the first documented incident that I can prove happened and I can say that is cult-like behavior, right? It's the first thing I can put my finger on with confidence. I, I have a suspicion that this had all been this plan since before like the one week Bible seminars, before the other pastors started coming around. From what you've told me, the bus ministry is a grueling task. And the way that I see it, when he came to First Baptist Church of Hammond and alienated two thirds of the existing congregation, right? Alienated, started with 900, ended up with about 300. That was him separating the wheat from the chuff. That was him sifting through the through the ore to find the gold. That he builds a small but steadfastly loyal group of followers who are willing to do all of the legwork and who are happy to create and participate in this culture, this strict culture of piety, which comes up with a plan to, you know, and he comes up with a plan to expand it. In 1959, when he uh, first comes to First Baptist Church, Jerry Falwell had already been nationally syndicated for three years. Brown versus Board of Education, which was the landmark Supreme Court decision that desegregated all the public schools, that was ruled in 1954. So at the same time, we have Elvis Presley on the TV. We have landslides in culture that we saw in the 60s, but you know they'd already started shifting by the by the late 50s. Jack Hiles is a smart man, right? Jack Hiles is a smart man. He sees this, and he also understands that his position is regards to the inevitable reaction to this culture shift. You know, I, I can't say that that's impossible. It is hard for me to envision him as a con man or as a conniver. I think a large part of that, the reason that it's hard for me to see him as a purposeful manipulator or a purposeful conniving man is because he always presented himself as a simple, uh, uneducated country boy. He even presented himself as like a slightly stupid man in his speaking and writing. And you've, you've heard a few of his sermons at this point. He uses very basic fourth or fifth grade comprehension level language. Uh, his books are written incredibly simply. He never used you know, big four or five syllable words, nothing like that. So I think I don't know if it's just my the leftovers of the love and devotion that I was raised to have for him, uh, or if it's truly my opinion, uh, or if it's just that he did such a good job of presenting himself as a simple man that it's hard for me to see him as somebody who would plan his own astronomical success. I can see him as a weak man. Uh, I can see him as a selfish man. I can see him as a man whose power went to his head. But it's very, it's very difficult for me to get my head around seeing him as a bad man. Hmm. But as, as far as the, the wedding rings, I did have something to say about that. The college was also founded with a multi-million dollar donation from Russell Anderson. The amount of that donation varies depending on who's telling the story. The IFB is not exactly known for financial or any other type of transparency. It's, it is possible that Anderson or other large donors like Jack DeCoster could have financed the remaining portion of the college or that Hiles tape and book sales could have financed it and that the wedding rings were just a stunt, like something that he planned, a test of loyalty that would cement people's loyalty to him for life. See, that's my guess. And I can see why you would think that. But since the only people telling the story are people who were under his spell at the time, it, it is just hard to know. 
The question is, though, that I had to ask myself while we were putting all this together. Have you ever known someone with that type of power over people, that type of charisma that wasn't brilliant? I don't think I have. Have you ever known somebody with that kind of personality who wasn't a con man or wasn't somebody who could be a con man if they decided to be? I I do as much as it is so difficult for me to even say anything negative about him ever. I do think there is reason to doubt his presentation of himself as a simple, uneducated country boy. So I think this gives us an opportunity to look at Jack Howe's past, his upbringing, his early career, and everything that made him into the cult leader that he turned out to be. Hey, Gavriel here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans ask us questions, and share memes. That's facebook.com slash Exodus. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leavingedenpodcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden Podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So I want to start at the beginning. Um, and Sadie, you know, you were raised in this, so I figured it's best for you to tell this. So the story that I know of Hiles is always the approved version. It's the story that's written in his approved biography by his daughter, Cindy Scop. And like with the wedding ring story, nobody was looking into Hiles before, you know, before 1970 or later. So there's very little outsider research to try to verify the way he told it. So I'm just going to tell it the way I heard it from him in his books and sermons and from my father. Hiles was born in Texas just before the Great Depression. During the Depression, his father, Athie Hiles, was an often absent, sometimes abusive alcoholic, and his family was very poor. So Hiles took refuge in attending church. He revered his mother, who was a Christian. Uh, He loved her so much. And because of his poor upbringing, Hiles associated himself strongly with the children that were brought to church through the bus ministry. So we know that Jack Hiles grows up with a strong view of what Christian womanhood is. 
and that there's some sort of like combination of reverence and disrespect for women who at least from what's told in the story it seems almost identical to how you told me the women and the families were to be treated like that the mother the woman was to be revered by her children but you know she could be neglected by her husband because he would not be present because he was working 60 to 80 hour weeks as a pastor that the church would be the refuge for the children so just as the church was for him during his upbringing he's effectively instituted that his own personal story be replicated thousands and thousands of times over in order to create a pipeline he's essentially made thousands of clones of himself to spread and grow ifb ministries all over the world just like he did in hammond i don't want to hear that i don't want to believe it but how could i deny that there is a parallel there you know, it's very much a putting women on a pedestal sort of thing. It's very much, yeah, I think Hiles romanticized his upbringing and it shows in these Victorian attitudes towards women because he was raised in the Deep South in the 1920s and 30s. It shows in, you know, the Victorian ideas of femininity. It shows in his dress code and it shows in his uh, pre-Freudian child rearing ideas, uh, like all the pages he wrote about beating children you you read that book didn't you yeah i have i I, yeah you made me read it (laughs) i'm sorry but even right down to his insistence that men have short hair and shave their faces that's a 30s 40s 50s idea so i think it's most likely that he romanticized his upbringing and then he maybe on purpose and maybe accidentally imposed that framework on other people you know, all these boys who are being sent through Hiles Anderson College, they're, you know, they're made to study his style, basically his leadership. So basically, he's created a bunch of clones of himself in his own image. Yeah. Yeah. And his book, Teaching on Preaching, is the textbook for preaching classes at Hiles Anderson. <laughs> and his books on Christian womanhood and his wife's books on that. And eventually later, his daughter-in-law's or his daughter's books on that are uh, the textbooks for Christian femininity at Hiles Anderson College. Uh, So many classes there. His books are the textbook. His child-rearing books are the textbooks for the child-rearing courses. His his church manual is the textbook for the how to run a church course. So moving on from that. So Hiles is born in 1926, which means that he turns 18 in 1944. He's he's going he's going to fight in the war. Yeah, and I, I believe that he was called to preach as a teenager. So he was probably planning on entering seminary right out of high school, but World War II came along and disrupted those plans. So he w- fought in the army, and while he was in the army, he married a young, like finishing school Southern Belle uh, named Beverly Slaughter. I love the way that you see the way that you characterize these people is always so romantic. You're like, oh, she was a young Southern belle that he went and <laughs> and like, of course, you know, they'll they'll. Well, yes, and that's what I was always told. Um, but if have you seen any videos of Beverly Hiles yet? If you see her, there should be one somewhere in the show notes. If there isn't, I'll add it. If you see the way she speaks, the way she walks, she looks like a lady who walks around the house with a book on her head to have perfect posture. And, and um, she's, just, she's a very fancy lady. So anyway, after the war, Hiles attended seminary, and then he pastored like a whole string of small churches in Texas. And then he got kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention 
before being contacted by the pastoral search committee at First Baptist Church in Hammond. So why did he get kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, as always, he was making a big stink about liberalism. From the Southern Baptists? Well, I think he also, he was, the, the Southern Baptist Church would send him teaching materials. They wouldn't tell him what to preach necessarily, but they would teach, they would send all the Sunday school materials. And if he had any like supplemental Bible classes at the church, the convention would send materials to teach from. And he didn't like that. He thought he was being told what to say. And according, at least according to, to the book where he speaks about it, that's why he left, or that's why he got kicked out of the SBC. When Hiles reaches First Baptist, First Baptist Church of Hammond, he's essentially a finished product. Like he's been preaching for about a decade. And so he's been able to hone his craft, hone his style, and the sort of fire and brimstone thing that's quite popular in Texas. Because see, the way that I see it, his time in Texas is basically what a more corporate or callous observer would describe as him test marketing his plan, you know, test marketing his platform. And that is that is another just totally new concept to me. Is that like be honest, is it is, is that really the impression that you get of him after hearing a few of his sermons? Oh, absolutely. Wow. This is just my opinion. But when I was in college, my major my major was rhetoric and media studies. My focus was on like narratology and media framing. And a lot of the people from my major went into PR, they went into advertising, marketing, went to school for their MBAs, stuff like that. When I see something like this, I'm definitely looking at it through the lens of somebody who has studied great orators, who has studied politicians, who has studied marketing campaigns. When a major party is going to start grooming a political candidate, they're not going to start by having them run for Senate or run for governor. They're going to start by having them test out their message in a local market where they're not going to get a lot of attention. So it'll be like city council or it'll be like state legislature or, you know, I sort of view this the same way. Like maybe because this is the first time I'm being exposed to this story after knowing what Hiles has turned into. Well, you were raised seeing Hiles as an overwhelmingly positive figure. I'm going to be a bit more cynical, whereas you're going to be like, no, it's still impossible for me to see him negatively. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't hurt. Okay, so five years ago, possibly, or certainly 10 years ago, it would have mortally hurt my feelings to hear you say that. Really? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's so ingrained so deeply in your identity. Yeah, it, so especially, you know, when I was still part of the IFB, if you had said that, I, I don't know if we would have been associated with each other anymore. Well, if we had been, if you had been part of the IFB, you wouldn't have been associated with me anyway. If I had been part of the IFB, I would have been trying to, to get you to turn to Jesus, well, which I, no I don't think I would get real far with. No. <laughs> so isn't it a good thing we met when we did? It's true. But I, you know, there is a, there is a time in my past where that would have just hurt to hear somebody say that. And now it, I don't think it hurts my feelings anymore. It doesn't feel as betraying to hear you say that, but it, it's still really hard for me to hear. It's hard for me to get my head around. Well, you know, it's just like when you talk to um, when you talk to people, when you're like, you know, Thomas Jefferson, like, look at all this terrible stuff that he did. And people are just like, no, don't tell me anything bad about Thomas Jefferson. He wrote the Declaration of Independence and he's the greatest, like... And that's a great analogy because before I got a little more educated and had to reevaluate my 
my thoughts and get some extra education. Well, there's a point in my life where I was a really big fan of Thomas Jefferson. And of course, now I've had to reevaluate that and have a more, (laughs) have a better worldview. But it was infinitely easier for me to find out that Thomas Jefferson, uh, all the thing, all the terrible, terrible things that he did. And it was infinitely easier for me to accept that yeah, I can, you know, I can admire some things that he did, but I can't admire him as a person. That was so much easier than finding out these things about Hiles and trying to get my mind around that. You know, for as much as I know about some parts of his life, the things that he said about himself, Hiles was always a man of mystery. And I, when I was researching, I think I found something that would help explain that. So this is from his book, On the Church, and I'm going to quote a couple paragraphs here. A husband and wife should have some type of wall between them. A pastor and people should have some type of wall between them. Friends should have some type of wall between them. There ought to be a certain kind of reserve between us and a certain amount of formality. I call it mystique, and it needs to be in every relationship. Husbands and wives sometimes do not get along with each other because they know each other too well, and there is no mystique. They have already conquered all there is to conquer. She is no longer intriguing to him. She is no longer a little mysterious to him. There is nothing more in her mind, soul, or heart that he thinks he can pull from her. In this quote, he's saying that there is a a wall between him and every other person that not even his wife knows him as deeply as she might. So what I have is a wealth of information from what he chose to share. 500 and something pages in a biography from what he chose to tell. But it's very hard to find out more about him personally because nobody really knew him. See, this is deeply telling because the implications of this statement are also important because there's something that like, it's something that I think is like of utmost importance to address because if you keep a distance between you and everyone around you, they'll never fully and truly know you. They will never truly, you'll never truly be able to form bonds with people. So if you desire like a life full of love and community and connections with other people, this is not a way to live a good life. But if you desire a life in which you feel no remorse for using other people to your advantage, this perspective, this way of living is extraordinarily advantageous. Like, think about it. At the same time, if you have followers who are also never allowed to truly know each other and are never allowed to experience true closeness to one another, you have essentially captured thousands of individuals, not a group of thousands. You only have taught them to divide themselves from each other. If a single individual divides from you, if it's it's much easier for you to cause their close friends and their family to cast them out than it is for your followers to truly know each other's hearts. So I want to tie this back to something that you said in the previous episode, how like during difficult times for your family, you and your mother were both basically forced to put on this face of positivity and you were both suffering, but you were both suffering alone. And even though you were family you were not allowed you were not allowed to support each other through this suffering because it would have been improper. Yes, and um I wanted to say something about my my time at Hiles Anderson. So you know me well. You know you know me very personally. And I think that if I'm not wrong, I think you would say that this type of interpersonal isolation does not go well. That's that's the opposite of who I am as a person. No, you're you're a very open person. You like I'm an open person to a fault. You know, everybody knows everything. Everybody knows my whole story. Just the, the minute they meet me, and now I'm putting it on a podcast. 
Yeah, you have to. I mean, but like if you're raised in a cult, it's kind of something that you have to be like, disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm I'm not. I, I'm a kind of person I want to be close to everybody who wants to be close to me. I I love, you know, deep conversations and, and getting into somebody's life philosophies. That's my jam. So this, you know, this didn't go well for me at Hiles Anderson. Um, at Hiles Anderson, any unusually close friendship is kind of questioned. It's, uh, you know, you'll get suspicions of maybe being gay. You'll, you'll get suspicions that you're putting that person above God. There's a lot of focus on self-reliance. There's a lot of emph- emphasis that your relationship with God has to take priority over your relationship with others. So if you get really, really close to people, if you get emotionally intimate with people, there's they start to question, well, are you really dedicated to God? So when I was in college and I was going through, um, I went through some some really difficult personal stuff at Hiles Anderson that has less to do with the college itself and more to do. I had a grandparent die while I was at Hiles Anderson. Um, I had some other just personal upheavals. And I would reach out in these very emotional ways to anybody who would listen to me, uh, staff members and teachers and friends. And I was like lashing out, reaching for, try to find somebody to like emotionally connect with me. And all I got was all this advice to, well, go to God with that. You don't need to be talking to me about that. You need to be relying on God. So as, wow. as far as capturing a group of individuals, I think that's really accurate. Because a person who thinks independently or goes against groupthink, they aren't betraying the group. Because we've been taught, remember, this is not a denomination. The group doesn't exist. This isn't a group. This isn't a cult. This isn't a group at all. This is just a bunch of individuals. (laughs) So if you step out of line, you're not betraying the group. You're betraying each person in the group personally and you're betraying jack hiles personally at this point in the story jack hiles has built up a church of thousands of followers who are united in their support of him but are emotionally and mentally isolated and separated from each other and he is using this control to build his own college yeah so he at this point so we're we're talking Early 70s, Hiles Anderson has been founded. We're early to mid-70s. He's reached national fame within the independent Baptist movement. His books and tapes are circulated nationwide. Uh, and he's amassed what vaguely resembles an unarmed standing army of literally tens of thousands of loyal followers. Oof. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> So before we end this episode, I think that there are some observations that I had about Jack Hiles that it's important to bring to light. Almost everything that Sadie knows about Jack Hiles is sourced from the IFB. And since the IFB is famously loyal, the chances of finding information to contradict the official story are slim to none. We know that Hiles was a highly intelligent and charismatic man who likes to portray himself as a man who is humble, simple, or even stupid at times. As an outsider, having spent some time now listening to various Jack Hiles sermons, I have formed a layperson's opinion that Jack Hiles was a habitual liar. Like, maybe it's just me being unfamiliar with what is or isn't normal during a Baptist sermon. But frequently, I hear tales that are just a little bit too tall or just like a little bit too perfect or poetic or 
on the nose to actually be true. And when I listen to him boast about the number of people who he counsels every week, these numbers seem literally impossible. And I think that's fair to say, because when we get to next week, when we find out what happens next, I think I'm interested to see how how your perception of him, if that changes or if it just amplifies your perception of him. So I think this is where we're going to end this episode, because next week we're going to maybe so buckle up, because this is where things really are going to start to get wild. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Leaving Eden podcast. Um, you can follow us on social media. You can follow us on uh, Instagram. Uh, on Instagram, it's at Leaving Eden Podcast. On Facebook, it's Leaving Eden Podcast. And on Twitter, it is at Leaving Eden Pod. My name is Gabrielle Ha Cohen. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Um, Sadie. And you can find me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music or on Twitter at Helia Sadie. I, I hope to I hope that you guys come and listen to the rest of this story because this story is just beyond belief. With that, uh, you guys have a nice day. But Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.